first reading is from Genesis chapter 22, verses 1 to 14, command to sacrifice Isaac. After these things, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains that I shall show you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son, Isaac. He cut the wood for the burnt offering and set out and went to the place in the distance that God had shown him. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place far away. Then Abraham said to his young man, Stay here with the donkey. The boy and I will go over there. We will worship, and then we will come back to you. Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, and he himself carried the fire and the knife. So the two of them walked on together. Isaac said to his father, Abraham, Father, and he said, Here I am, my son. He said, The fire and the wood are here, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham said, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. So the two of them walked on together. When they came to the place that God had shown him, Abraham built an altar there and laid the wood in order. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to kill his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here I am. He said, Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham looked up and saw a ram caught in the thicket by its horns. Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called that place, The Lord Will Provide. As it is said to this day, On the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. The second reading this morning is from Matthew chapter 10, verses 40 to 42, and you'll find that on page 10. Whoever welcomes you welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me. Whoever welcomes a prophet in the name of a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. And whoever welcomes a righteous person in the name of a righteous person will receive the reward of the righteous. And whoever gives a cup of cold water to one of these little ones in the name of a disciple, truly I tell you, None of these will lose their reward.
And thank you, Margaret, for sorting out our misprint. We decided not to read the whole chapter since we read most of it last week. Can you imagine being Abraham and trying to come to terms with hearing this command? Can you imagine being part of a society, a community, and a worldview in which kill your son looks like a reasonable thing for the gods of your tribe and your community to ask of you? Reasonable enough that you appear, as the story is told, to go ahead without too much compunction and questioning. Can you imagine what it is like to be part of a society in which, in order to appease the gods, the divine, that which sustains the world and makes it secure and keeps it functioning, that climbing up a hill with your son, your hope for the future, the one who is the promise that there will be a future, that these powers that, that you, these powers have given to you, that climbing up a hill with him to kill him seems like the proper thing to do. Can you imagine it? Can you imagine the grief and the horror, the distress and the anger, the sense of powerlessness and fear that shape that world, that faith, that response to the divine? I really hope that you are struggling to imagine, and that is, I hope that it is a struggle for you to imagine such a setup, such horror and distress and such a sense of oppression. I hope that such an imagining does not come easily to you. Just in case it doesn't, let me help you. According to UNICEF, among the world's migrants are more than 21 million refugees who have been forcibly displaced from their own country, of whom nearly half, that is 10 million, are children. An additional 41 million people in 2015 were internally displaced due to conflict and violence, and an estimated 17 million of those were children. Children are being sacrificed to appease the gods of violence, the god that claims, I will keep you safe, I will protect you, I will defeat your enemies, just give me your children. Eight hundred thousand children this week are dying from hunger. In March, The Economist wrote, the causes of the famine are mainly political. The situations in South Sudan, Yemen, and Nigeria are no exception. War blights all of these countries. In South Sudan, where 5.8 million people need food assistance, the government binds delivery of aid in red tape and frequently denies deliveries. Aid workers suggest that by doing so, it prevents supplies getting into the hands of rebels who might well then sell them to buy weapons. The main port in Yemen has been bombed out, and the lengthy permit process required to get food through the maritime blockades means it's often spoiled. Some two million people are in an emergency situation, and a further five to eight million do not have enough to eat. Nigeria's war in the north has resulted in 800,000 people fleeing to one city alone, Maiduguri. Many aid agencies do not want to deliver supplies to dangerous rebel-held territories, and global response has been inadequate. Western governments and aid agencies have invested large amounts of money but done little to address the political problems that cause starvation. In South Sudan and Yemen, they acquiesce to the obstacles the governments place on distributing aid. In South Sudan, it has proven impossible to introduce an arms embargo or sanctions. In Yemen, 
Britain and America supply most of the weapons used to bomb the rebels. America has also given logistic and intelligence support to Saudi Arabia's war effort there for two years. And so famine, which should have been abolished throughout the world, is coming back. The children, the elderly, the weak are sacrificed to the gods of political expediency and global politics. Those gods who claim we can sustain the universe, we can run things, we can make it safe and sustainable, we can take away anxiety for the future. Just give us your weak and your vulnerable as a sign of your devotion to our cause and actions. And just in case you can't imagine, listen to part of the poem that Ben Ockrey published last week after the fire at Grenfell Tower. Those who were living now are dead. Those who were breathing are from the living earth fled. If you want to see how the poor die, come see Grenfell Tower. See the, world, see the tower and let a world-changing dream flower. Residents of the area call it the crematorium. It has revealed the undercurrents of our age. The poor who thought voting for the rich would save them. The poor who believed all the papers said. The poor who listened to their fears. The poor who lived in their rooms and dreamt for their kids. The poor are you and I, you in your garden of flowers, in your house of books who gaze from afar at a destiny that draws near with another name. Sometimes it takes an image to wake up a nation from its secret shame, and here it is every name of someone burnt to death on the stairs or in their room, who had no idea what they died for or how they were betrayed. They did not die when they died, their deaths happened long before. It happened in the minds of people who never saw them. It happened in the profit margins, it happened in the laws. They died because money could be saved and made. Those who are living now are dead. Those who are breathing are from the living earth fled. If you want to see how the poor die, come see Grenfell Tower. See the tower and let the world-changing dream flower. They called the tower ugly. They named it an eyesore. All around, the beautiful people in their beautiful homes didn't want the ugly tower to ruin their house prices. Ten million was spent to encase the tower in cladding. Had it ever been tested before except in this eyesore? Had it ever been tested for fire, been tried in a blaze? But it made the tower look pretty. Yes, it made the tower look pretty, but in 24 stories, not a single sprinkler. In 24 stories, not a single alarm that worked. In 24 stories, not a single fire escape. Only a single stairwell designed in hell, waiting for an inferno. Those who are living are now dead. Those who were breathing are from the living earth fled. If you want to see how the poor die, come see Grenfell Tower. See the tower and let a world-changing deed flower. Sacrificed to the gods of expediency and looking good, to the gods of austerity and preserving the status quo. We do not need to imagine a world in which the young and the vulnerable and the powerless, weighed down by the reality of their own destruction, Isaac carries his own wood in which this happens. We live in it. We don't need to imagine it. We only need to open our eyes and look around. We leave, live in a world in which the gods of redemptive violence, of money, of self-interest, of expediency and preserving the status quo have power and demand sacrifices. Sacrifices that all too willingly and all too blindly are made. Sacrifices of the children. Sacrifices of the powerless and the vulnerable and the voiceless. We don't have to imagine it. The real question is can we imagine something different? Can we imagine a world in which, in the face of the implacable demands of these gods, there is the voice of another? One who says, don't kill the child. There is another way to do this. 
Can we imagine a world in which what or who creates and sustains, saves and gives life is not violence or fear or safe choices or even common sense, but the God who called Abraham and made him a promise that looked impossible and then kept it. Remember, Abraham and Sarah had no children nor were likely to have, and then Isaac was born, and there was life where there had only been the reality of death. Can we imagine a world where such a God is God? And a God that we can meet if we're open to that possibility. Not because we seek or search for such a God, but because this God comes to speak to us and to show us something different and to dare us to trust it. Can we imagine such a world in which the children are not sacrificed and the poor are not weighed down by the burden of their destruction and the women are not shut out of the movements of history? Where is Sarah? in the story of that mountaintop sacrifice. Can we imagine a world in which we dare to live as if life and not death is the meaning and the end of all things? And if you can't imagine it, let me help you. أكثر شيء بحبه الدكتور والصحافة بتمنى إنه أنا أطلع هيك أنا حابة أطلع ممرضة بس علشان أنقذ العالم اللي بتموت بالأراضي بقرأ قرآن عشان أطلع من أكبر الشيوخ أكون مفتي أنا بدي بدي سين مترجم مترجمة إنجليزي لأني هالشغل كتير كتير بحبه من أنا وصغيرة يعني إلي رغبة فيه حتفيدني كتير مثلا إذا بكرة كبرت وما لقيت شغلة يمكن يكون بكرة أصير أربي نحل أعلم كمبيوتر أعلم حدا غيري يمكن أعلم إنجليزي حدا غيري كمان يعني بقدر أعلم إنه زي ما تعلمت أنا لازم أعلم When I work here, I, I feel I am still a teacher. I didn't miss my, my career. I am outside of my home. So it's, it's very difficult to have a job, to have a work as in my home. This is a center. Give me this a chance to support me. I am, I am a teacher. I am still a teacher, you know. رسخرتنا أنا ورفقاتي هون بالمدرسة ضحكنا الأستاذ لما يشرح وإحنا نقعد نحكي ونتزانق وهو يشرح لحاله وإحنا نحكي هذا كثير حلو يعني بالنسبة لأنك طلاب بس بالنسبة للأساتذة ما حلو أكيد that seems too far from home, what about this? Chris. Chris.
Chris helps out at the evening centre on a Tuesday evening. And I'd ask you three questions, which I know I can't remember. Why, what, what goes on? Who comes? What do you get out of it? What happens? Right. Do you, do you um, um, so, sorry, what was on, did you say? Who I, comes? What, what happens? All right, yes. The, um, the, the homeless come by invitation. The, the, the aim of it is that after they've left a, a public library or somewhere that's warm, they've got several hours which they've got to kill before they can bed down in a shop doorway or something. So the idea of the, uh, the evening centre is that they can come along, have a, have a nice hot meal, can sit in the warm, can talk to people, which is actually more important than you think. And uh, they play games, some of our Tuesday games, like uh, a couple of Italian girl helpers were teaching Rummy Cub, I'm delighted to say. And there are other things like curly dominoes and this, this sort of thing. But funnily enough, the most uh, popular thing, I think, is um, Dawn's set of... Um, only fools and horses. They, they absolutely love it, as, as I do as well. And then, um, uh, uh, and then there's a sort of a throwing out time. You know, they have the meal, the, the pudding, and so on. And then uh, it winds down around sort of nine nine thirty or so, and then people leave too. And what are people getting from it? Um, well, very basically, of course, they're getting food. They're getting warmth. They're getting fellowship. And, um, yeah, I guess that's it, really. Yeah, um, right, okay, so... And why are you doing it? And why am I doing it? To help out, to, to, to make a difference. Um, it used to be just two Tuesdays uh, a month, and I could sort of cope with that. And then when it went to every Tuesday, I, I, I couldn't cope with that kind of commitment and then funny enough it, it actually meant me cut it cutting back but I decided that what was important was to support Dawn in that when there's a deacons meeting she has to be in two places at once sort of in the deacons meeting so I thought it was important that there's a Bloomsbury person on the flight deck and this seems to be sort of working out sort of quite well because I know where all the plates go and I know how to operate the dishwasher and, and, and various things, you know. So I sort of help out and work with the Simon community, of course, who actually provide the food and cook it and, and, and so on. And so that, that's part of what I'm saying about being a Bloomsbury person as well as the Simon community and other helpers that um, are running the show. That's great. Thank you very much. Okay. And if that seems too local or trivial, what about this? From a blog from someone who is an ecumenical companyer in Israel-Palestine. I was recently part of an international team living in a tiny Palestinian village in the Israeli-occupied West Bank. We were participants in the ecumenical accompaniment program. The village overlooks a long, fertile valley to the hills beyond. Mostly the peace is broken only by the sound of sheep, goats, cockerels, hens, turkeys, donkeys, cuckoos, and woodpeckers. As EAs, we made our presence known by taking long morning and evening walks past the fields and ancient olive trees, enjoying some splendid views. We joined a community of people getting on with their everyday lives. We bought eggs and almonds, olives and olive oil, soap, embroidery and honey. We were given lemons and pomelos and tomatoes and parsley and mint and bread and cake. We were touched by the warmth and generosity of this traditional community of around 80 people. 
And why were we there? Looking up from the village, the reason was clear. Houses, agricultural buildings and watchtowers, outposts from a nearby settlement have taken over the surrounding hilltops, connected to each other by tree-lined roads. Some of the buildings are barely 400 metres in the village. And the buildings are a constant reminder of land lost to settlements and outposts, as well as settler violence. They threaten more violence to come. In 2002, almost all the residents fled after several years of violent settler attacks. These resulted in the death of a villager and several animals, as well as the destruction of the village's electricity and water pumping system. Some farmers were beaten up in the presence of their families. Even children were threatened by the armed settlers. People from Tayayush, an Israeli peace group, were first on the scene, followed by others from different international groups. Over time, these accompanied most of the villagers back to their homes and stayed on, and the violence reduced. Ecumenical Accompaniers has provided accompaniment and protective presence since 2003. Life is restricted now, grazing only possible close to the village. Flocks of sheep and goats, previously around 200 animals, are typically just 20 to 50. Animal feed must be purchased year-round using money from cheese-making. Meanwhile, on our walks, we saw larger settler flocks on village land. Farmers must request a military presence when tending their land near a settlement or outpost. We were told that soldiers restrict access according to settler instructions, that little or no protection is available against settler violence, that any army intervention is for the protection of the settlers, not the Palestinians. Work on these lands is limited to the two or three days where such protection is provided, often leaving work uncompleted or olives unpicked. None of the villagers are engaged in any violence against the settlers. Theirs is a peaceful resistance, steadfastly continuing their lives as normal as possible until, inshallah, peace finally returns to Palestine. We don't need to imagine a world in which this God comes and speaks to us. The God who is not the God of the violence or the markets, expediency or status quo. We can live in, we are called to live out of these words of Jesus. Whoever welcomes you welcomes me. Whoever welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me. Whoever welcomes a prophet in the name of a prophet receives a prophet's reward. Whoever welcomes a righteous person in the name of a righteous person will receive the reward of the righteous. And whoever gives even a cup of water to one of these little ones in the name of the disciple, truly I tell you, none of these will lose a reward. We live in a world, we can live in a world like this. There's a surprise ending in the story of Abraham and Isaac. We can miss it because we know the story so well. But the whole structure of the story is built up towards Abraham sacrificing Isaac and so receiving his reward. Of course, that's not how it turns out. And as a story written down to tell the people of Israel who their God was, in contrast to the gods in the world view around them, the whole point is the surprise, the reveal. It's the debunking of the accepted story of divinity. It's a story that says, yes, this is who everybody knows the gods are, the ones who demand child sacrifice. And it's a fact that there were religions around in this world in which the stories first told, first recorded. They did practice child sacrifice. And this story explicitly does not, explicitly rules it out. And that's its big twist. The twist is that God does not demand, but rather God offers the sacrifice. And similarly, this listing of Jesus, of how people are blessed and rewarded, has a twist in it. Welping, welcoming the prophet receives the prophet's reward. Welcoming the righteous receives the righteous reward. The next in the sequence should be and is expected to be the holy or the wise. 
That's the way the story goes. That's the way the rhetoric works. It's just as fixed as our kind of fairy story where three sons go on an adventure and it's the third one who's successful. Or an Englishman, an Irishman, and a Scotsman go wherever it is. It's that kind of discourse. The prophet, the righteous, the wise. And here's the twist. The prophet, the righteous, the little ones. Whoever gives a cup of water to the little ones is in the right place for the blessing of God. Okay, now we can argue about who is meant by the little ones. Is it the disciples, as it often is in Matthew? Is it the children, which it can sometimes be? Is it the weak, the vulnerable, the overlooked? I don't think we need to choose. The point is that it is not the expected completion of the statement. It's an overturning, a turning towards those normally overlooked, a valuing of those normally disvalued, a giving of the lie to those who are other, giving of life to those who are otherwise deprived of life. And it's small, and it's manageable, and it's where the blessing of the God of life comes to rest. And it comes as part of an immense claim and call. Whoever welcomes you welcomes me, and whoever welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me. And here I'm really going to ask you to stretch your imaginations, because here is Jesus saying, not, go and do the things that change the world in order that people may discover me. Not, go and dare to love and serve so that the way is opened up for people to go on and find the truth I've come to bring. What Jesus says here is if they welcome you, they meet and welcome me. And if they welcome me, they are welcoming God. That is, you are the presence and the action of God when you give somebody a glass of water. The life that is the life of God, the center and the meaning of all that is, the sustaining of the whole of possibility and hope, the depth of all reality is present in you, giving somebody what they need to flourish. The power and the presence of God is something God does not keep locked away in the heart of the Trinity. It is shared and poured out and passed over and embraces us as we turn to one another, not to sacrifice somebody, but to offer life and to welcome and to meet. God provided the ram that made the connection that Abraham sought. God demonstrated that God is not the God who asks for sacrifice. Rather, God undermines and destroys the whole sacrificial system by subverting it and rewriting it. This is my body given for you. This is my blood shared by you. The life that is in Christ is also in us. Can we imagine what it is to live the life that is in Christ? And if it is hard to imagine, here it is. Offered freely, open to be received, given without reserve, put in our hands. Can we imagine a world in which we live this?